Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Okay, so last week we began this conversation about temples. Odd, strange thing, temples. Problem with that is that if you look at the biblical narrative from the very beginning where God starts to reveal what he's doing in this world, that theme of temple actually is front and center. So it's a bit of an issue for us. If we're not familiar with temples, yet the Bible predominantly, uh, to a large degree, is about temples. So that's why we want to start this conversation about temples. We looked at this scripture last week from Genesis 2, verse 1 to 3, which says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished what he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day, made it holy because he rested from all the work of creating he had done. And so far in this story, what we've been highlighting and actually pulling out of God's narrative is that um, in the Genesis creation account, we have this story about how God, how Yahweh is creating a cosmic home. And last week we mentioned that there's a difference between a home story and a house story. And again, if you weren't here, go back and watch that YouTube um, uh, episode. It's only like 22 minutes. So the Genesis creation account is not necessarily the story about material beginnings. It's a story about functional beginnings. He's creating a home. And again, like if you're on our app on Friday, I actually sent through a Bible, a, um, Bible project thing just talking a bit about this. So Genesis 1 is this account of how God establishes functional order from a formless chaotic space of non-order to inaugurate a cosmic temple. That is what he's doing. And to the original recipients, they are living in this period of time which we call the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East is a period of time that we use to actually describe the culture, the values, the shared knowledge that all these people kind of had who lived 3,000 plus years ago. So as these original people living like thousands of years ago, as they hear this story for the first time in their mind, they know automatically, ah, oh, this is a story about how God is creating a temple. They knew that, and they knew that from very um, limited information which we find. They, they knew that from these key points. There's six days of creation. On the seventh day, this thing's finished. On the seventh day, God rests here, and there's also this image which God places inside this created thing, and they knew he's talking about a temple. The method of temple building in the ancient Near East was really, really common, not just with Israel, but with all of the nations surrounding what would happen when you wanted to build a temple? You could only build a temple if your God was victorious over another nation's God. In other words, if your nation goes to war with another nation and you just kick their backside, you know what I'm saying? You just like give it to them. That actually said that your God just smashed that God. And when your God smashes that God or your God is victorious over that God, you can actually build a temple in honor of your God. And that temple takes six days to build. On the seventh day, um, your God comes and rests in there. And lo and behold, everyone at the known time, when the temple was built, they put an image which represented that God in the temple. Sounds familiar to our creation account, right? There's a reason. So the temple actually represented two important things, at least two important things. Number one, 
It was a monument. Think about it. It's a building. It's a monument that is declaring the victory of your God over every other God. It's actually saying that our God is the cosmic God, is the real king, is the Lord, and we, our God just smashed your God. That's what it's saying. It's a monument to victory. We understand monuments. We have statues and monuments, and they point to people. They point to events. They point to things. When you look at, look at this monument, or, 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 or you go to the MCG, and you see the statue of Shane Warner over there, you don't think, oh, I wonder what that dude doing. No, that is a monument which is pointing to a person who's the greatest spinner of all time. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> but a point somewhere. A temple points somewhere. So it was a monument to the victory of your God, but it was also the literal space where your God dwelt. Hence, God comes and rests. It meant those two things. Now, under this understanding of temple, there was also this understanding of divine warfare, which is important to know as well. Because if a temple is all about the victory of your God, well, that victory only happened when there was a war, a cosmic war. A battle. So it makes sense that there's going to actually be some underlying understanding of what this warfare is all about. And lo and behold, in the ancient Near East, there is common patterns of divine warfare, not just from Israel's scriptures, but from other um, nations in their stories as well. Um, and it's just really interesting that the way that God communicates to his people is actually on their, ter their terms with their understanding in their culture, in their values, which is just fascinating, isn't it? I said last week we live in this postmodern liberal democracy where everything we want on our terms, and the problem is you can't read the Bible in your terms because you won't get it. We have to actually read the Bible on their terms. And then when we can understand on their terms, then we can apply it to us, and then we can walk it out today. So what I wanted to do, before I trip over this road, um, I wanted to show you this common pattern of divine warfare. I've got a slide that's coming up, but also um, it's in your um, notes. So there was a common pattern when it comes to divine warfare. This is kind of what happened, um, the narrative which kind of happened. There was a threat, then there's conflict. Obviously with the conflict there's a battle, then there's a victory. After victory, the, the winning deity is crowned king. And after this kingship happens, there's this um, process of house building or temple building. And then after this house building or temple building, there is this time of celebration. For those people who are loyal to their God, obviously your God just won, so there is celebration. I love celebration. Anyone else love celebration? I reckon one of the issues of the church is that we just simply don't celebrate because we don't know about this pattern. Um, and this pattern's actually also seen through Israel's scriptures in many, many places in the Old and New Testament. One key place might be, um, do you remember that time when Moses is leading God's people out of Egypt and they're by the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, whatever you want to call it, right? By the Red Sea, Pharaoh's armies are coming and God just smashes Pharaoh's armies, right? And then there's this song found in Exodus um, 15, which actually is about this victory, and you actually find this divine pattern actually there. Um, this divine pattern is found throughout the Psalms. It's actually found in the um, New Testament, in Revelation and all that. It's actually found throughout our scriptures. 
because this idea of temple, which began in Genesis 1, actually threads through the entirety of God's story, as strange as it is. Are you guys following me so far? How is this interesting or helpful for us? I mean, it's interesting, but how is it helpful in 2023? Well, this divine um, pattern of divine warfare, it helps us in that it helps us understand a couple of things. Number one, it's going to help us understand what Jesus actually accomplished with his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. What exactly is the victory of Jesus Christ? Is Jesus' victory about saving me, getting rid of my sins so I can go to heaven? Okay, however you want to define that, it may include that, but Jesus' victory is a lot more than that, according to this and according to the narrative that starts in the book of Genesis. It's going to help us appreciate the new unique privilege that we have as the church of Jesus Christ, as the temple of Jesus Christ. It's going to help us understand and appreciate that, but it's also going to help us understand what our witness to the world should be. So it's at least going to help us in those three things. Number one, what did Jesus actually do, right? It's going to help me understand my place as a church and appreciate that a little bit more. And it's going to help me understand what my witness as a church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be to this world. And again, we're going to go through this for the rest of this year. So what I thought I'd do, because I do want to pray for people, that's why I'm going fast. I wanted to use a book that we've, used, we've studied in the past, the book of Ephesians, to show you that this is actually, this divine warrior thread is actually throughout the book of Ephesians. Um, it's actually in a lot of other books as well. But it's actually really explicit. And the pattern, again, is that there's a threat, there's a conflict, there's victory, there's kingship, there's house building, and there's celebration. All right. So in your notes, we're just going to quickly go through that. Are you guys with me? Yeah. All right. Even if you're not, go and recap. Kingship actually rocks up a lot in the New Testament, and particularly in the book of Ephesians. Let me read from verse 18. Now, pay attention to um, verse 21 in particular, but I'm going to read from verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and in his incomparably great power for us who believed. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Verse 21, far above, we're going into some kingly language here, far above... All rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Throughout the New Testament, there is an absolute declaration of the supremacy and the kingship, the cosmic kingship of Jesus Christ. That is through everywhere. But then you have to ask the question, well, what qualifies Jesus to be that cosmic Lord? But you're saying that every power, every rule, every principality, everything that Jesus is above that, in fact, all these powers are subject to him. Why? How did that happen? Well, that's where you have this conflict victory kind of thing. Again, this divine pat warfare pattern is actually throughout this. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler 
of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at war in those who are disobedient. Okay, so here's the conflict. Turns out that your salvation is more about your forgiveness of sins and you getting to heaven. Because the victory of Jesus Christ right here is about this cosmic enemy, the kingdom of the air. That there is this cosmic battle, this cosmic war that happened. And by the way, Jesus effortlessly just absolutely destroyed. Well, defeated, yet to be destroyed. I should watch my words. We'll get to that. So in this passage, again, we haven't got too much time. Let me give you some highlights. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 16 talks about the triumph of Jesus. What was the victory of Jesus? Number one, his victory over the principalities of powers, all of these rules that rule this present evil age, letting us know that in this world that there are powers and rulers, there are invisible characters which are enslaving people. They're enslaving people, you know? There is this thing of enslavement. This has happened throughout history. Yahweh looks at that and said, Mm-mm, don't like that. I want my people to be free. So Jesus comes and his victory is over that. That's actually good to know. That's actually really good to know when you're in environments and you're thinking people are just punks or you just think, oh, they're just doing dumb things over and over again, maybe you can step back and understand, wait a minute, in the grand scheme of things, there are principalities, there are powers, there are influences, and there are things that are enslaving people and causing them to do dumb things, dehumanizing things. I reckon we can have a lot more compassion. Don't you reckon? We can have a lot. I mean, Jesus had compassion. The disciples come up to Jesus, and they say, oh, what sin has he done to be in this place? And Jesus said, he hadn't done no sin. releases them effortlessly right so against that backdrop Paul lets us know in Ephesians that God's triumphed over these powers and he has set people free from their grip that's the first thing second thing he talks about the law something funny happens with the law the law was given which was supposed to be beautiful it is beautiful but Sin came in and started using the law to bring division instead of the law being this open thing which invited people in. So Paul says, this is another thing that Jesus triumphed over. Out of all these different peoples, Jews and Gentiles, where there used to be hostility, there is now one people. That's victory. Victory on a couple of fronts. So Paul actually talks quite explicitly about the victory. What about celebration? Celebrations, Ephesians 2 verse 17 to 18. He came and preached peace. That's a victory cry because there shouldn't be peace between all these different people. But there's peace available. Do you know how amazing it is just to have peace? Oh, but verse 18, for through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. Not only are you like, like, this is not a thing where you were once enemies. You once hated each other's guts. You had nothing in common, but now you have the same father. So you're all family, and family celebrate. We should be celebrating that. That should be a good thing, to actually look upon you as a brother in Christ. That should be an amazing thing, and that should be like a delight. That should be something I celebrate every day, because that was not the case. But because of the victory of Jesus Christ, I can now call Karen my sister. How about that? And you call me your brother. How about that? And that should be celebrated. When we come together, it should be celebration, because... That's what he's done. But at the same time, that's the pattern. That's the pattern. That's what people do. House building, temple building, Ephesians 2, verse 20 to 22. 
Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become, there we go, a holy temple in the Lord. There's that word temple right there. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What is a temple? Temple is the literal space on earth where God dwells. If you are part of the church, any church who's given allegiance to Jesus the King, the Cosmic King, if you are part of the church, guess what? You're the temple. If you're the temple, you don't need to pray and plead for God to come. This is his house. We're invited into his house. We're not inviting him into like our house because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think that there's this paradigm which I've been thinking about and praying through. Like we, 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 we contest and we plead and we pray. And like I'm wondering how different, if we can get some information, these layers of understanding, then we come to the point we recognize, no, we are receiving the kingdom. We're not pleading for God to come. He's already here. That sounds good to me anyway. So having listed these triumphs and establishing um, Christ as having power over the rulers of this present evil age, Paul explains that this new creation that's been inaugurated, this new humanity, this temple, the church, is also the place where God dwells by his spirit. And as such, it stands as a lasting monument to the exalted lordship of Christ. In Israel, they had the temple in Jerusalem. And that reminded Israel that their God was superior to all the other gods and indeed was a sovereign ruler. In the ancient Near East, we have texts that depict deities who triumphed through combat with other deities and earned the right to have a temple built in their honour. And in the very same way, the New Testament lets us know as this narrative is continued, as this understanding is passed through, that in the same way, the construction by God of his new temple, made up by this one new humanity, points to the triumph of Christ and the subjection of all the powers that oppose them, and that's important to know. So here is the paradigm, which I kind of want to show you before we land or where I want to land. What has Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension accomplished? Yahweh's cosmic enemies who enslave humanity and enslave creation, they have been defeated. That should make someone happy. They've been defeated. You guys are still trying to suss out if I'm saying the truth or not. I could even pull that New Testament scripture and you're still like, because some of us, we haven't learnt this stuff, you know. Here's the paradigm. God's enemies have been defeated. They haven't been destroyed as yet. And we live in this obscure, in-between moment. What's the church? It's God's house. God's temple. A monument to that victory. It is a literal space of Christ's reign on earth. God's here. You don't actually have to ask him. He's right here. We are his temple. And we who are the people who are loyal to Jesus, this cosmic king, we are supposed to be those who celebrate his victory. Imagine having a lifestyle of celebration. Imagine actually being like, Followers of Jesus Christ, and this is like part of your job description. You guys need to celebrate. 
over and over and over and over. And can you imagine the kind of joy you would have if celebration was your norm over, over, eating together, drinking together, like doing awesome stuff together, playing golf together, going to the footy together, taking delight in each other, going to nice restaurants and eating great food, actually looking at creation, going for walks, enjoying creation, doing it together over and over and over and over. Could you imagine if people thought that's what Christianity is about instead of people saying Christianity is about boring, 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 you're not allowed to dance, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that. And yet the pattern will actually say is followers of Jesus Christ, our job description should be celebration, 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 celebration. Some of us need to give, you need to give yourself some permission to have some joy. You need to give yourself some permission to celebrate, to laugh, to do things you actually really love doing and doing it together. Could you imagine that? Imagine going to church and it's just like laughter, joy. That would be like, seriously, that's what it is. For through him we have access to the Father. We're children. Shout, celebrate, enjoy. Christians are like these boring little, you don't understand the story. But that's not where I want to land today. Monday night, we were here, we were praying. And I felt God just impressing my heart to actually pray for some people. The church is supposed to be a monument to the victory of Christ. And there are people in this church where you actually need to see some of that victory in your own lives. Let me give you an illustration of what kind of happens. I'm going to ask Mitchell to come up because he's like big and muscly. So this is how the story pans out. We kind of read about the mess we put up. There's this mess, a rebellion on earth, Genesis 3, a rebellion in heavens, Genesis 6. Tower of Babel comes up, Genesis 11. Deuteronomy 32 makes a comment about the Tower of Babel, that in that moment, as there's a scattering of people all over the place, there's also a scattering of other Elohim over different regions, and they have rulership over different regions, and then it all just goes, hey, why? It's messy, it's nuts. So what happens is that before Jesus comes, there are these cosmic enemies that actually enslave humanity, like kind of like, like, oh, you know, and like, I'm trapped. I mean, like, if this dude wants to go this way, like, I've got to go this way. Like, if he wants to go this way, I've got to go this way. Like, over there. Like, you can't do this with Eva because she's just, like, she's stronger than you, right? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, like, but that, that, that's kind of the picture. We have this humanity that are enslaved. We can't see it with our physical eyes, but in a spiritual dynamic, that's actually what's happened. And it's actually uh, like defeating those enemies. That's actually the victory of Christ. So what happens is that Christ comes and he did, no, we'll do that one. So does that. Jesus comes and notice in the Bible, like, he, he, he actually says things like, you, you know what, like, how's a strong man going to be defeated unless someone stronger comes into his house and starts plundering his house? So Jesus comes and defeats these cosmic powers. He even goes to the point and says, if I do anything by the power of God, that is like the finger of God moving in your midst. So he comes and effortlessly does that. So these powers have been defeated, but they haven't been destroyed yet. And they're really mischievous. They're really meddling. So guess what happens? Like you're walking around, you give your life to the Lord and all that, and you're living in this obscure dynamic right now. He's just ready to pounce or do something, right? <laughs> right? And I'm just walking around and like, just like, they're defeated, but they can still have influence, you know? 
I'm not even going to say what you look like. <laughs> he looks like a good-looking drummer. <laughs> but this is what happens. But what do you do? Because sometimes we're a bunch of scaredy cats. And we think that there's influence here and we've got nothing we can do. But we're, part, we're, we're, we're citizens. We're, we're the community of this kingdom. In fact, the New Testament says that we're supposed to be reigning with Christ and all things are subject to Christ. So it's actually as simple as like just doing that. But you've got to know it's there. Has anyone got a dog? Like, I, I remember when Oscar was about to do something really mischievous. You know, you know how dogs can be mischievous? They're about to do some dumb, dumb thing. He's about to do something dumb. And all I go is, oi! And he just cowers. You know why? Because I owned him. The principalities and powers are mischievous and meddling. They're owned. They're owned. And when things come and meddle with you, you just simply have to, well, firstly, you need to recognize it, renounce it in the name of Jesus, and then take on some postures of renouncement. And we'll get on to that next time I come. Thanks, Mitch. But did you get that visual? That's kind of what's happening. So on Monday, I'm over there and I'm like praying. I just see our church and there's this deep compassion. And it's like, we are a monument to the victory of Christ, but there have been things that have been mischievous and influencing you for maybe decades. And you may not even know it's there. This is not to take away from the hard work that is necessary sometimes when you actually have... Um, biology that lets you down. We do understand that sin has come and touched every part of creation, which includes this body. I mean, I'm diabetic. Sin come and touch this, you know what I'm saying? But there are times where there are influences that lay behold that. Maybe you've been in this moment where you've got this addiction that has been paralyzing you. For so long. And that needs to be renounced so freedom can come. Because you are the church of Jesus Christ and you are a monument to his victory. Right? Maybe um, one thing at which I, I, I try to um, lovingly correct in Christians is language. When I grew up, we heard about things of like you got secret sins in your life. Anyone heard that? I hate that, secret sins. Because you know the reality? It's not a secret sin. It's a secret prison. It's a secret prison. It's a secret prison that God wants you to be released from. Secret prison. It can become very personal, I understand, when we're talking about things like pornography and things like that. And we hide away and we shy away that's a secret sin. I know denominations where if you get caught, you're out of the denomination. As a minister, there's denominations if you get caught, man, your credentials are gone. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's this guy or this girl, because it actually happens to both. Let's just take this for an issue. There is a secret prison. Where is our love? Where is our compassion to actually see the captive set free? You know what I'm saying? There are things, like I have tried to be very safe with people for this very reason. Trust me, I am not surprised by anything, you know? 
And I am as broken and banged up as anyone in this room. Make no mistake. Absolutely. But if there are some things that are causing influence in your life, let's pray. Let's pray. You don't need to tell us what it is, but let's just stand with you and pray. Understand, though, that these principalities, powers, rulers, they are defeated. They are yet to be destroyed. They may have, like, a bit of influence on you, and you can, like, get away in Jesus' name. They'll probably try to come back tomorrow, and you're going to have to stand again. And then the next day, and you're going to have to stand again. Having all to do to stand, keep on standing. Keep on resisting. Here's, a, here's how this um, comes to an end in Ephesians. Ephesians 6 verse 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Collectively, as the church, put on the full armor of God. You realize when it says the full armor of God, that's literally God's armor. Literally his armor. So that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. Understand, that's a collective thing. Collectively. Like if Karen's got the devil coming after her, it's not about Karen standing. It's actually as a church with Karen standing. This is what it means to be a monument to the victory of Christ. We do this together. You know what I'm saying? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. And here's the deal. We look at that and we say, my fight is not against by that person over there. No, no, no. At the moment, you're fighting yourself. You're beating yourself up. You're smashing yourself. The narrative in your mind is bringing dehumanization from your own lips. And God says, that's not your fight. It's against principalities and powers. And that false narrative that's wrecking your mind right now, that is evil. That is not from God. So we're going to go into a moment of just worship. If you don't want to come forward for prayer, that's okay. But if, you, if you're listening to me, and I've tried to bring some layer of understanding to this. I even used Mitchell. But if you would say, you know what, Dave, I reckon there's something else in play here. And I've been paralyzed for far too long. And if what you're saying is true, that as the church of Jesus Christ, our lifestyle is celebration, and we are supposed to be a monument to the victory of Christ, well, I have not seen any of that victory as of yet. Well, let's start it. Let's pray. Let's take it before God. And tomorrow morning when you wake up, you better believe you're going to have to pray again. You're going to have to stand again in the next day. So how about we stand? as we bring this to a close.